Throughout this pandemic, so many of us have lived in fear of our loved ones getting the virus. Parents or grandparents, people who we knew would be vulnerable if they got it. But of course, some of them have fallen sick. My own dad got it early on. And when people asked me how he was doing in those early days, I'd say, he's not great, but it could be worse. His infection turned into long COVID and his return to health was long. But when I said it could be worse, I was of course thinking of the now tens of thousands of families who have lost loved ones or whose relatives are on ventilators or in comas. And it turned out that that was what was happening to a colleague of mine called Nicky Wolf. His dad, Jeff, fell sick early on too. But 306 days later, he's only just emerged from hospital and he's only just got home. In this week's Slow Newscast, we hear of the remarkable story of Jeff Wolf, his mind and body racked by disease. We hear what a year of the pandemic has been like for him and for his two sons. I'm handing over to Nikki. Okay, do you want to wheel yourself around to where you're comfy and we can sit? Yeah, show me how, show me how slowly the, the number one setting moves. That's me, Nikki. And I'm talking to my dad, Jeff. Oh, that's good. That's great. We're sat in his living room at his home in North London. In the background, you can hear Sonka. She's dad's care coordinator. I was just waiting for everything. We call her the Colonel. She's currently living in the spare room while dad settles in. Right. Ready to go. Now? Yeah. Um, you don't have to leave. Only a couple of days before this recording, on January 21st, 2021... Dad had come home from hospital, 306 days after being admitted with COVID. Patty, I give you a um, silly response to your request. Right now, I'm helping Dad draft an email to Paddy O'Connell. He's the presenter of Broadcasting House, Radio 4's Sunday magazine show. He interviewed Dad soon after he came home. Elizabeth Bennett. And he asked him about Pride and Prejudice, so the email we're drafting is about Elizabeth Bennett. Yes, that Elizabeth Bennett. Pride and Prejudice became a motif for us over the course of a hellish roller coaster of a year. The response should be to her um, first request to marry him from Mr. Darcy. Stop. Dad hasn't always spoken like this. Before he was taken last March in an ambulance to the Whittington Hospital in North London, he spoke more than fluently. Jeff Wolf, my dad, inherited his love of words from his own father and passed them on to us, his three sons. Our earliest memories are of him reading stories to us at night or tracing the letters with his hand as he taught us to read for ourselves. We grew up in a house full of books and we all read voraciously. Family holidays entailed hauling a library's worth of extra luggage. Dad would regularly recite Shakespeare from memory or fetch the well-thumbed complete works to retrieve a particular quote. Friday night dinners were lively with readings as we competed to dig out the right line from Robert Frost, Virginia Woolf, or Kurt Vonnegut, Sylvia Plath, or E.E. E. Cummings, or Jane Austen. Then, 2020 happened. 
It feels almost dreamlike to try and think back to those early days of the pandemic now. How we thought, how we behaved, how innocent we were, how naive. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a story with a hopeful ending. Dad is back with us. He's talking about Jane Austen again. But it bears thinking about how we got here. The outbreak began in December in the central city of Wuhan, home to more than 11 million people. Chinese health officials insist the situation's in hand. Cast your mind back to the middle of January last year. 41 patients in a hospital in the city of Wuhan in Hubei province in central China are sick with what's been confirmed as a novel strain of coronavirus. And on January 20th, it claims its first victim. In central China, a man has died following an outbreak of an unknown pneumonia-like virus, which officials say comes from the same family as the deadly SARS virus. By January 22nd, six of those infected, that's one in ten, have died. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. But it remains low in the news agenda, partly because Trump's first impeachment trial is reaching a crescendo in the U.S. Senate. I'm covering the trial, so I'm not paying attention to the news from China. It still feels distant and unimportant when, on January 31st, the virus officially reaches the UK. Unwelcome but expected. It's inside this hospital in Newcastle, where two patients from the same family are now in isolation and being treated by specialist NHS staff. In the months that follow, we'd all become intimately familiar with the grim calculus of survival that living during a pandemic requires. In late January, researchers finally begin to raise the alarm that this variant of coronavirus appears to be much, much more dangerous than at first thought. The World Health Organization declares a public health emergency of international concern on January 30th. Two months since COVID-19 spread out of Wuhan, Italy is silent. And as the number of cases continues to rise past 100, the north of this country is on lockdown. By March, it's beginning to dawn on us that this is going to be a real thing. People have started panic buying toilet paper, for one thing. By the time Prime Minister Boris Johnson issues an advisory against non-essential social contact and hints that a lockdown is coming, I'm paying attention. There is more that we need you to do now. So, second. Still, now is the, time the night before lockdown has dropped... I decide to go with a friend for one last pub trip. 
I've obsessed over that night in my head a thousand times. I didn't properly calculate the risk. But then, nobody seemed to be taking it particularly seriously. If the danger was imminent, why was lockdown on a time delay? What happened in Italy couldn't really happen here, could it? Still, the thought still haunts me. Was what was about to happen my fault? The next day, UK coronavirus deaths pass 100. Princess Beatrice cancels her Buckingham Palace wedding. Glastonbury's cancelled too. The dam breaks. The ceiling collapses. The flood finally penetrates our daily lives. It's in every nook, every freedom, laps around our feet. There's little we can do but build a small raft of face coverings and antibacterial spray. We bob around, barely afloat in the ruins of our comfort. Dad is 73, but he's fit and healthy and active. He goes to the gym three times a week. In his whole career as a solicitor, he barely missed a single day's work from illness. But on March 21st, he starts to get sick. By the following morning, he's so fatigued he can barely move. I find him face down on the breakfast table, an uneaten bowl of muesli and blueberries beside his head. By early evening... His temperature has started to climb. I call 999 and get an automated message. Eventually, when we get through, they tell us to wait. Dad is shaking and shivering now. He doesn't appear to have difficulty breathing, but he's also become an unreliable narrator. He just wants to go back to bed. He's just tired. He tells me he's checked his temperature with a thermometer, but he hasn't. I can't tell if he's drinking water or just telling me he is so I'd leave him alone. I call the NHS hotline back, and they put in a call for an ambulance just after nine. Dad goes to the bathroom again and is in there for more than half an hour. He seems scared too, and that shakes me more than anything else so far. The ambulance arrives at 10.38. They do some preliminary tests, but we'll need to take Dad to the hospital. My last few moments at home with Dad are spent frantically searching for a phone charger. They take him into the ambulance, then they drive away. The hospital calls at around midnight. I'm sitting in the dark, chain-smoking. By the time Dad arrived, his temperature was above 40. They don't know what it is yet, but they're treating him with antivirals and antibiotics to be on the safe side. The doctor's name is Rachel. She says she'll call back in an hour with an update. And she calls back at 1am. The tests were inconclusive. The next day, Dad messages the family group. He seems in good spirits. The hospital is being very thorough, he says. Chest x-ray, brain scan, bloods, urine. I think they're practising on me. I can't get the ward to pick up the phone, though. Are you in Mary Seacole North, I message Dad. Yeah, I think it's Mary Seacole, Dad replies five minutes later, and I know the point of the compass. They still haven't answered the phone. You don't have a compass in that bag of yours, I message. There are no conclusive results that day, but Dad is still messaging, which must be a good sign. The doctors seem to be implying that they're just waiting for the results of the test before he can go home. 
His temperature is still up and down, though, which isn't great. Dad's nephew is on the family WhatsApp. He's a consultant cardiologist at a teaching hospital in Hertfordshire and has now been pulled off to help with their coronavirus response. At his hospital, he says, we're keeping patients in until fever settles, but as things become more desperate, patients will go home with paracetamol. He sounds scared, too. I get a call from the hospital around three. They say he had a comfortable night, but still no results back from the tests. There's another around half seven that evening. Dad's temperature is spiking. They might need to put him on oxygen. The next day, it's announced that retired doctors are being called in to help with the pandemic. When I call, the ward have trouble tracking Dad down. I finally get through to a rushed-sounding ward sister who at first gives me the details for a patient named Jan. Eventually, she tells me Dad is now on a ventilator. It's unclear if she means full mechanical ventilation or just oxygen support. The COVID test has still not been processed. Dad's now on CPAP, which is oxygen assistance, which isn't full mechanical ventilation but is still bad news. His O2 requirement seems to have peaked, though, down to 40% in the afternoon from 60 initially. I don't sleep that night, so I miss the next morning's hospital call. My youngest brother Sam calls and speaks to Dad's nurse, but she says she's swamped. When I call at noon, it's engaged. I keep trying. When I get through 45 minutes later, they say Dad's just been taken to intensive care. The world turns into numbers after that. Cases, deaths, days, weeks, oxygen percentage, oxygen pressure. The one we're all trying to gauge, likelihood of survival. I'm the point of contact for the hospital, as I'm down as next of kin. So I'm updating the family, mum, my two brothers, and dad's sister Carol. Between us, we'll be on the receiving end of dozens of we-aren't-hopeful chats. The only thing to do is aim for facts alone or the hope-despair cycle is too much to bear. But it has to be shared with someone. I am spending my nights obsessively reading just-published papers out of Wuhan. I spend hours cataloguing case fatality rates. A treatment called ECMO gives the best chances of survival, but there are barely a dozen ECMO machines in the country. Dad's new ICU doctor, Freddy calls me that afternoon to tell me Dad is sedated and comfortable and that they've been able to bring his oxygen mix down to 75% from Max. Max is bad. The test was inconclusive, he says. But they're treating it now on the assumption that it is COVID-19. A disease that had barely registered in my mind just weeks earlier. At this point, the treatment is the same either way. Another doctor calls me the next afternoon, starting a routine that would go on for the next three months. It's now too risky to do a CT scan, because it would mean unhooking him from the machine and wheeling him across the hospital. They've been able to reduce the oxygen a little bit more, but now his kidneys are failing. There is a lot of information, and I've barely slept. Is he still on the same antibiotic? I forget to ask trying to take notes in email drafts as the doctor talks. She sounds hopeful, I think, that Dad is going to be okay. But, she says, he'll need to be sedated and on a ventilator for a bit. 
maybe as long as a week. He'll be on a ventilator 67 days. He'll be in intensive care 127 days. He'll be hospitalised for 306 days in total, one of the longest COVID hospitalisations in the country. When he comes home, he'll have aphasia, a cruel condition which means that while he can think clearly, he struggles to put those thoughts into words. And he'll be in a wheelchair, paralysed down one side. It's interesting trying to put one's mind back. There's so much that we know now that we didn't know then. I don't think I was immediately worried for his life. Um, this is Sam, my youngest brother. Testing one, two, three, four, five. Okay, yeah, two is to test. Voila, in view, a humble vaudevillian veteran cast vicariously as both victim and villain by the vicissitudes of fate. He, as you might be able to tell, is an actor. All right, so take us back to that first day. We realised something was up with Dad. I was at home, had just gone into lockdown a few days ago with me and my flatmate Joe. It was all a bit... There was still a sense at the beginning of that that I think a lot of people felt that no one quite likes talking about is that something... There is excitement when something huge is happening. There's worry as well, but you kind of go, oh, wow, well, you know, there's stuff's happening in the world. This is a bit different. You know, there's a bit of... There's a bit of energising kind of... Not quite frisson, but, you know, it's... It's exciting. It's exciting. Something Something different is happening. And we didn't know how deadly this thing was it still felt like a thing that was very far away and the fact that it that dad was feeling ill i still we, we none of us thought that it was the virus that strongly we wanted to be really sure which is why we delayed going to hospital because we were worried that going to hospital he might get it and he was always a very stoic guy with illness as well and just kept saying he was tired or sleep it off it didn't it wasn't an acute feeling it was just a was that the anxious neutrality of, okay, something's happening, I guess we just have to wait and see. And then that just steadily got worse. And to ask about those kind of days that sort of, I remember them as, as just interminable, like every day the same. For for me, it narrowed down because I was the, you know, one getting I was the one getting those hospital calls but like what was that for you sort of waiting on the on the updates hmm. I have written on my mirror still because I haven't taken it off the sentence I can handle it whatever happens I will handle it and you look at it and in looking at it it becomes true a little maybe having a cry Maybe having a glass of wine, maybe having a cigarette, but not, you know, fundamentally holding my shit together. Because we had to. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to rage. There's no space to externalise what's happening. You've got the four walls. You've got your once-a-day exercise. There's nothing to do but experience the thing that is happening. And try not to experience the future at the same time because the present is enough
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ventilation, mechanical ventilation, is really, really awful. For those hardest hit by coronavirus, a ventilator can be the only hope. My husband would have died without a ventilator. A tube is shoved down your windpipe, and in order to not reject it, dad's been placed in an induced coma. Putting someone on a ventilator is not like flipping a switch and turning on your car. Intubating somebody is a high-risk scenario where you're taking over their breathing from their body. The hospital allows us to video call in through some arcane NHS system. Dad has been proned, which means placed on his front, something they're finding helps with COVID patients. It means the ventilation tube cuts into the corner of his mouth. When we video in, we can see the dried blood. He doesn't look good. It's scary. The hospital are putting pictures of the patients before they were intubated by the bed, just so the doctors can see the people they're treating the way they were before before they looked like this. We were worried Dad would be bored deep down there in the darkness under all those tubes. It was Sam who came up with the idea of sending Dad an MP3 player to listen to audiobooks on. And he said, if I'm ever if I'm ever ill, if I'm ever in a long hospital stay, this will be the book I want to read because it's so comforting. I mean, Pride and Prejudice, so comforting. And that uh, stuck with me. Um, I liked that about him because it was, it's, it's, he was often a serious, quite a serious man. He didn't, not that he wasn't lighthearted, but, you know, he, 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 he doesn't suffer fools gladly. And I, at 16, was often foolish. So um, it was nice to see that side of him that Jane Austen would be his comfort. The kind of this powerful intellectual lawyer person focused on the accuracy of language and specificity of thought. It's, he loves Austen. That's that's nice. It was a nice facet to his personality. And we wanted to be able to have this in his ear while he was unconscious, knowing that we 
we would never know if he would be able to hear it or not. But it was some kind of communication. It was some kind of connecting branch between us and the unconscious body with so many tubes that you can't see the person. But if we can re-reading to him, I mean, there's a bit of a revert parent-child reverse there in some ways. We were read to a lot by him as a kid. Now has a chance to read to him. And maybe... He can come back a bit. ...debate the government's record so far. That's just ahead. But first, we meet two brothers who sent audiobooks to their father who's on a ventilator uh, and now want the scheme to expand. Jeff Wolf is... Dad's doctors told us that all their other patients wanted one too. And thanks to the kindness of Audible, who donated a whole bunch of devices, Sam and I set up a project we called Books for Dad. We're now in dozens of hospitals across the UK... And moving into more each week. You know, there's the, one of the most uh, kind of tragic things about this whole disease is that families of patients, uh, you can't go visit uh, your loved one in hospital. So loneliness and, and boredom and, and fear is a real problem. So when uh, when we asked his doctors if we could get him uh, audiobooks to, to listen to, his doctors said universally that would actually be great for all our patients because, you know, loneliness has, has become a real problem and, and it's such a long recovery from the disease. By May 9th, Dad's oxygen stats have finally returned to something like normal and he's taken off the intensive mechanical ventilation. I get the first good news in a really, really long time that day when a nurse calls me to tell me he's opened his eyes. But that's basically all he does. His infection markers are dropping, but he isn't returning to consciousness. On a CT scan, the hospital has seen the signs of a massive stroke event in the brain. When you want to test consciousness at the basic medical level, you do a little pinprick to the finger. Even low levels of consciousness can respond to pain, but Dad doesn't flinch. The sedation has by this point been lifted and has processed out of his system. His eyes have opened there's no evidence of consciousness itself. He's not moving. When a light is shone into his eyes, they react. The iris opens up, the pupils dilate, but he is not tracking. His milky blue-gray eyes are fixed, wide and staring straight ahead, as if at an unseen terror. Dad's oxygen requirement, our metric that anchors the hope-despair cycle each day, has been coming down day by day. That's the ironic thing. He finally seems to have beaten the disease. He no longer has COVID. They've been able to fit a tracheostomy that's a hole straight into his windpipe, so the ventilator tube is no longer forced through his vocal cords. I tell the family group, the neurologists want to meet with us to discuss next steps. Something I've forgotten is that we had been pretty positive. Maybe positive's not quite the right word, but we, for some reason, had the impression things were starting to get a bit better because oxygen, oxygen levels were improving and had been a bit from the previous week. At one point, they were really, really dire. I mean, when the, when an ICU unit is telling you that your relative is the patient they're most worried about. The meeting room is bleak. 
The window opens to only a three-inch crack, and the air is still and too hot. We sit, masks on, six feet apart in a wide circle. The neurologist scrubs are black, and he is calm and patrician. He tells us that the damage to Dad's brain is too great. That his body is there, breathing, but it is a shell. The thing that lived in it, Dad, is gone. I remember thinking, oh, this is coming as a surprise because I thought things were getting better. And then you had, he's already gone. That was the takeaway. That was the the main sentence that stuck with me. You need to anchor onto something in those moments. Your body's in overdrive, you're shaking, you can't, it's struggling to hear. Family members tend not to take in that much information when doctors are giving that kind of news. So I latched on to he's already gone which is pretty unequivocal. And then went and started to say goodbye and started to grieve from that moment. One by one, we're allowed into Dad's room to say our goodbyes. Sam, when he goes in, reads him Do Not Go Gentle by Dylan Thomas. Dad's friend Larry, with whom he hitchhiked across Canada in the 1970s, sends him a farewell recording. When it's my turn to go in, I open the email, hold the phone to Dad's ear, and hit play. Hello, Jeff. I'm just wanting to send you a a message of, of support and love, and here it is. When I play him this, I feel like something breaks a little inside me. It was like a sudden bridging of the gap in time gives me a glimpse of Dad at my age, even younger, tan and fit, travelling the world, thinking about thinking. I'm an insomniac. I feel like my mind works like Dad's does. And suddenly, when I hear the song, his favourite, and imagine how he heard it too, what it meant to him... I feel closer to him than I ever have before. And then, like a terrible weight, the sadness hits as I realise I'll never be able to share that moment with him. Like Dad, I never cry. But I do now. Uncontrollable, racking sobs. The unfamiliar, salty taste of tears. That night, I listened to the song over and over and over. There is a decision to be made. Now we have to choose a time to turn off life support. If we hold on, if they keep weaning him off the ventilator in this condition, we could end up in a scenario where we're keeping his body alive medically, losing the option of him peacefully slipping away. If his body can breathe on its own, there's no euthanasia in this country, so we'd have to withdraw nutrition over a period of months. 
And we couldn't even start to do that until he's been in a vegetative state for six months. He wouldn't have wanted that. And he didn't want to fade away. He wouldn't have wanted to fade away. He hasn't been conscious of what's going on. Those are the, the positives you hang into. Gotta say, the others are dealing with this better than I am. You didn't accept so much the the reality of what was happening, I think. Um, I was in denial. Yeah. And Mum and I spoke about that that was happening and that we... You know, I, I remember you saying that night, I'm not ready to give up yet. And I thought, well, I'm, what we're ready for isn't... The world doesn't care about what we're ready for. You can't fight... can't fight existence. can't fight reality. But at the same time, I tried to hang on to positives of the fact that you weren't accepting because, you know, if there is hope, maybe I can feel it through you a little bit. I am spiralling. I'm in the hospital every day. I'm refusing to accept what they're saying, refusing to believe the light's gone from Dad's eyes. The doctors are adamant, but I'm pleading. Just one more test. He can't just be gone, I think. He can't have come this far, fought this hard for nothing. He must still be in there. Must be. I'm in denial. Outside the walls of the hospital, COVID numbers are falling. London is opening up. But we're trapped in our private nightmare. I mean, maybe it was partly how much I, and sort of still do, not hugely psychologically healthy, but how much I was blaming myself for it. Mm. You know, I was living at home. If he, When he got it, I still think it almost certainly would have been through me. You never know. You'll never know. Never know, but that was on my mind. You know, there was like a last. <sighs> when they brought in that delayed lockdown the night before, I went. You know, like a lot of people did, for one last pint, because that was essentially what the government was implying people should do. Of course. And I'll just—I don't think I'll ever shake from myself the idea that that's where he—that's where it came in. I grasp at every straw. One day, a nurse tells me she thought Dad responded to one of the pinprick tests just a little. But the other medical staff said that was unlikely, but I latch onto it. Sat at his bedside, Dad's out of the COVID part of the ICU now, and having let us in to say goodbye, the doctors seem to feel they can't stop us coming in now. I am searching for any sort of sign. On May 30th, I swear I saw Dad twitch his eyebrow. One inconsistency obsesses me in particular. The EEG, the brain scan, found low activity everywhere. Brain death. But the stroke was just on the left side of his brain. Surely the scans would have hemispheric differences. Maybe the test is wrong. It's a desperate play for time. If the limbo, the time when Dad is sick, never ends then he can never die. Sam and Mum have a quiet conversation outside of earshot. Nicky is bouncing around the early stages of grief, he says. He's fighting it. There's nothing to fight. Already gone, they said. 
But the hospital, more out of kindness than hope, agrees to humour me with another test. And it shows slightly more brain activity than the last. Then, slowly, Dad begins to wake up. Um, okay, let's do a more, the more serious interview part of this. So just going back, what do you remember from before? Do you remember anything from before? I don't remember the um, story of my getting sick and I from then on I have no recollection until I woke up in hospital. Dad had been in an induced coma for almost the whole span of the pandemic. When he regained consciousness, he couldn't really speak. I scrawled conversation trees on a clipboard for him to point at. I would like to know about medical stuff, the family, the world. Dad tapped on each one in turn. What's it been like slowly coming to learn, you know, once you've started reading the newspapers and stuff, realising how much of a global catastrophe you've been part of? I don't feel as though I was part of that. Um, what happened to me is so personal. In July, Dad was finally discharged from the Whittington Hospital and sent to the Royal Hospital for Neurodisability in Putney to continue his treatment. I took my surprise, they all chewed up to cap me and cheer me on my departure. What he's saying there is hard to make out, but he's describing how all the staff at the Whittington turned out to clap and cheer when he was discharged. This was a huge moment, not just for us, it turned out, but for the country. He'd become emblematic of something, maybe hope. Strangers who'd lost loved ones to the disease or had family in hospital still sent me emotional emails telling me their stories. The messages of support made me feel guilty sometimes. People were going through hell. Dad had been discharged but wasn't home yet. He was on his way to a neurological hospital to try and recover from the devastating wreckage of the disease. He was paralysed. He couldn't speak. What everyone else saw as a triumph, we knew was the beginning of a long and difficult road. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he'd have chosen this. No, I mean, I don't. I don't know. You know, you got. I think it's important to voice those thoughts at the same time without... At the same time, while knowing they don't change anything, I think so often we're worried about saying stuff like, "Is this was this the right decision?" Because, of course, it's the thing that's happening now, and 
we will make the best for him for whatever there is now. But it's okay to have them. We all have them. And I certainly find to to say it out loud, feel it a bit, and then go, okay, well, that's done with for a bit. Did we make the right choice? You say that and you can have a wail. But there are no right choices. There are just, there's just the thing that's happening. And there's no... And again, there's no, there's no other way things could have ever happened. We took examined choices as best we could. All choices are made without sufficient data. You just do your best. Dad's time at the neurological hospital was worse in a way. He was conscious. We could speak to him on the phone. His voice was slowly coming along. But we'd been able to see him in the summer. Because after we woke up, doctors let us keep coming in. In Putney, we couldn't see him. I saw him just twice in six months. Worse, he was bored. For neurological recovery, human contact and conversation is crucial. But the hospital was strictly locked down. Understandable, there's a lot of very vulnerable people in there. But Dad was depressed frustrated at his lack of progress and lonely it was awful meanwhile we were sprinting to get everything ready for his return Putney gave us a discharge date January 21st 10 months to the day since he'd been rushed off in the ambulance everything at home had to be torn out and rebuilt the yard at dad's house had to be taken up and leveled for wheelchair access door lintels had to be lowered dad wouldn't be able to climb the stairs at home he may never be able to walk again at all so we partitioned the living room to give him a bedroom area on the ground floor and built a disabled bathroom over the holidays the builders worked tirelessly but it was still a close run thing work on the inside of the house was finished at 10pm the night before he came back it was a magical day Dad had one request for when he came out, a plate of steak and chips, which I duly cooked. And I nailed it, by the way. Just to have him there, to eat with him, to chat about our days, these are the things you never realise how much you'll miss until they're gone. Uh, finally, I think, if you, with your permission, Nicky, we, we talked, if I could talk to Jeff. OK, here he is. Thank you. OK. Hello, Jeff. Welcome back. Thank you. It's a miracle, really, this story of yours, do you remember hearing Pride and Prejudice? Do you think that Elizabeth Bennet was right to reject Mr Darcy's first proposal? Personally, otherwise, the second half of the book would never have been written. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Wolf. This isn't a clean story. It wasn't a fight or a victory. Life will be very different now. What recovery, what does the recovery process ahead look like? I have no idea. But Dad is back. He's writing that letter to Paddy we heard him drafting earlier, a longer answer to his question about Elizabeth Bennet in the interview. We know we're incredibly lucky for that. The families of the more than two million people this disease has killed don't get to have that. COVID has changed not just Dad, not just our family, but humanity as a whole. We will, none of us, ever be the same again. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.